right, and you will turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. We are going to jump into, it's not deeper waters this time, it is principles for life. And uh, we are going to see if we can take some principles from the Bible and apply it to our life. And we will start with these verses right here. And I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation. So hopefully that uh, makes it a little bit easier to understand. There it is. All right. Fifty men from the group of prophets also went and watched from a distance as Elijah and Elisha stopped beside the Jordan River. Then Elijah folded his cloak together and struck the water with it. The river divided, and the two of them went across on dry land. When they came to the other side, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me what I can do before you are taken away. And Elisha replied, Please let me inherit a double share of your spirit and become your successor. So for just a few minutes, just a few minutes, I want to talk to you on this uh, grammatically incorrect topic, not doubled for nothing. Everybody look at your neighbor. Say, not doubled for nothing. <laughs> I think they shared it online. I was like, ah, it's fine. Not doubled for nothing. It'll make sense, hopefully, by the time we're done. Um, but th this, is a, this is a relatively common story in the Bible, right? We've heard this story before. It is the story of Elijah, the great prophet, as he is ascending up into heaven, and Elisha, who is his protege, asking for a double portion of his experience. Hey, raise your hand if you've heard of this story before. You've heard, of, you've heard of the mantle being passed. This is still ringing really bad, guys. I don't know, I don't know what that looks like up there, but if you could do that. Um, so this mantle is being passed, right? We've heard about this. And in fact, I have a slide to help you out because I had some questions about what a mantle looked like. And so these are some possible examples of what a biblical mantle looked like. So I'm really thankful for the photographers that were there in biblical times. <laughs> This, this is their. This is what. This is what the scholars perceive a uh, a mantle to look like. The idea is a cloak that Elijah would wear over his shoulders, a sash, um, something that that symbolized uh, maybe maybe made his garment unique to him, and it was a big deal for Elisha. And he said, "Look, I really want a double portion of everything that you have. And so when you leave, if you could just give me a double portion of it, that would be great." And so the material of the sash of this mantle became representative of that double portion. That was the whole idea. And so this is a really big deal. The passing of the mantle from Elijah to Elisha is very, very, very often spoke about. Um, it, there are conferences and services within the Christian movement. In fact, if you were to Google passing the mantle conference, you would probably find like 50 of them close to you. This is a very common thing that uh, is talked about in the Bible. And I'll just give you a quick plug. As far as passing the mantle conferences go, we have the very best one right here in Kansas City down at the Life Church every October. Huge shout out to them. We love that conference. Um, but I tell you all that to say this. I don't want to focus on the actual passing of the mantle tonight um, in this story um, because the, the mantle was passed. And as Elijah passed the mantle off to Elisha, he, Elisha receives this double portion, and then what does that look like after that, right? What does it look like when you become anointed by God, and then you actually have to go out into the real world and to use it? Um, and so that's really what I want to focus on, because Elisha, he was not doubled for nothing when he received that mantle. Amen? Amen. So Elijah was quite the guy. So 
let's look at what made Elijah special. Um, Elijah was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. So I promise you I won't talk about the northern and the southern kingdom for too long. But what you need to know is this, that after King David and King Solomon passed on the scene, the nation of Israel was split into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom, which was comprised of ten tribes, and then you had the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. Um, the southern kingdom retained the temple, the priest, and they did their best to walk with God. Everybody say they did their best. <laughs> the northern kingdom did not do their best. I don't even think they tried. They didn't even try to live for God, really. When you read through First and Second Kings, it is just a really bad king leading people into the worship of false gods and false idols, and Jehovah God becomes almost an afterthought to the northern kingdom. It's getting very bad up there. It's very carnal. Um, they're worshiping false gods, mostly Baal, and bad things are happening in this kingdom as they turn further from God around this nation. These powerful kings and these powerful kingdoms rise up, and they have this strong desire to take over and remove the nation of Israel. And so Elijah is raised up in this time. He's raised up to go into a godless nation who has turned their back on God and to demonstrate God's power to them. And this is, this is how Elijah comes on, the, comes on the scene. If you turn to 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 4, this is the first time we hear about Elijah. There's no, there's like no warm-up. There's no nothing. It's just Elijah's on the scene, and this is what he's doing. It says, now Elijah was from from Tishbe and Gilead, he told King Ahab, as surely as the Lord God, the God of Israel lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. Then the Lord said to Elijah, go to the east and hide by the brook near where it enters the Jordan River. Drink, drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you, for I have commanded them to bring you food. So this is Elijah's entrance. He rolls into this evil king. He's like, guess what? The rain's gone. I stopped it. If you need me, I'll be out here by this brook. Ravens are going to fly over and bring me food. I'll be fine. If you need me, that's where I'm going to be. He shows up with authority, and he shows up with God's power, and he literally stops the sky from raining for a period of a few years. And right off the bat, we see that Elijah has a special anointing from God. He's got this special power, and he is connected with God. And so when you go through First and Second Kings, not going to spend a ton of time on Elijah, but just to give you some background, here's a few of the things that he does during this time. He stops the rain in Israel. He causes a drought, which forces Israel to recognize that God is in control. He calls down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel to consume a sacrifice, which results in the slaughtering of all of the prophets of Baal. He, at one point, he actually finds a widow who's about to lose everything. He tells her to gather all of the pots she can find. And he blesses this one pot that has oil in it. She goes around and fills all the pots in her house and is able to sell all of this oil that miraculously appeared. And so she didn't lose everything that she had. Another time, Elijah raised up the dead son of a widow. Amen. Prayed for him. Son was raised up. Well, one point in the Bible just mysteriously tells us that Elijah is awoken from a sleep by an angel who's cooking him breakfast. And he eats with this angel. They're just eating breakfast together. And not only are they eating, but the food that he eats lasts him for like 40 days for this long journey. Um, he sees God on the mountain. He hears him in a still, small voice. He parts the water with his mantle. And ultimately, really bad way of summarizing Elijah's life, he is taken up with a chariot of fire 
into heaven having never tasted of death. Not bad. He would have been a pretty solid youth pastor, I think. <laughs> uh, the, he just, he came in, he was in tune with God, and he was letting that nation of Israel know right off the bat, hey, you are not serving the one true God, and let me introduce him to you. That was just, that's just who Elijah was. And so Elisha, who is going to be the, the person who follows Elijah, uh, he either saw these miracles firsthand or he heard them from Elijah himself. The Bible says that Elisha was like the personal assistant to Elijah. And so it's important to note that when Elisha asked for a double portion, he's not like asking for a second scoop of ice cream. Like this is some intense stuff that he's, that he's claiming that he wants from God. So it's important to note that God doesn't anoint somebody for no reason, right? God doesn't just anoint us to validate us. He doesn't just anoint us because it sounds like a good time. He anoints us for a purpose and for a calling and for a purpose that he's going to uh, use us for. And so even though the nation of Israel had chosen to no longer follow God, his love, his love for that nation was so great that he poured out more miracles, signs, and wonders during the time of Elijah and Elisha to a nation that didn't even care than at any other time recorded in history. He loved that nation, and he was reaching for them so much. And Elisha is like, I want a double portion of all of that great stuff that Elijah has. However, I don't believe that Elisha knew what he was getting himself into. The Bible doesn't say this. Just go with me. Uh, Elisha does not make the same bold entrance into ministry that Elijah did, right? You can almost see the ravens flying in with Elijah feeding him as he's telling them there will be no rain, right? This is Elijah's entrance. But Elisha has a very different entrance. And if you turn to 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 11 through 18, you will see the first of three encounters that Elisha has following his doubled anointing. So look at these, look at these three encounters that he has. We'll start with this first one, a little bit of reading here. And it says, as they were walking along and talking, suddenly, this is Elijah getting ready to head out, man. Suddenly, a chariot of fire appeared, drawn by horses of fire. It drove between the two men, separating them, and Elijah was carried by a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha saw it and cried, my father, my father, I see the chariots and charioteers. And as they disappeared from, from sight, Elisha tore his clothes in distress. Elisha picked up Elijah's cloak, which had fallen when he was taken up. Then Elisha returned to the bank of the Jordan River. He struck the water with Elijah's cloak and cried out, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? Then the river divided. That's cool. The river divided. And Elisha walked across. And when a group of prophets from Jericho saw from a distance what had happened, they exclaimed, Elijah's spirit rests upon Elisha. And they went to meet him, bowed to the ground before him. Sir, they said, just say the word, and 50 of our strongest men will search the wilderness for your master. Perhaps... The spirit of the Lord has left him on some mountain or in some valley. No, Elisha said, don't send them. But they kept urging him until they shamed him into agreeing. And he finally said, all right, send them. So 50 men searched for three days. Everybody say three days. But did not find Elijah. Where could he have gone? He went up into heaven. Um, Elisha was still at Jericho when they returned. And he said, didn't I tell you? He's sitting at Jericho and he's like, didn't I tell you not to go? Lot, lot to read there. This is Elisha. He's received the double portion. Elijah has been taken up into heaven. And right after he receives this great anointing, his peers and colleagues start to question his calling and his anointing. 
he, he's there, man. You can imagine. He sees the chariots of fire. He's just like, God has opened the windows of heaven. He's taken Elijah up. I've got this mantle. I am doubly anointed. He walks up to his peers, and they're like, mm, he's probably over there. He probably didn't go into heaven, right? They, they literally said, let's search in the cliffs. Let's look in the valleys. Like, maybe he just, maybe he just got dropped off somewhere, and your, your, your story is not 100% adding up. And the Bible literally says in verse 17, they shamed him into agreeing that they could go look for him. How do you feel about that, right? You just go to youth congress or men's conference or morning prayer or your living room if you're really in tune to God. You see the heavens open. You walk in and you tell somebody about it and they're like, eh, it probably didn't happen like that. You know, and you're just, oh man, it probably hits a little bit weird. You could say that Elisha had double the anointing but half of the respect. And, uh, and that's okay because you know what? Kings feared Elijah. But Elisha finds himself sitting in Jericho just waiting for these 50 guys to get back and confirm what he told them in the very beginning. So he's off to a great start. It's not the same start as Elijah who's calling down, you know, ravens and not allowing it to rain. This guy's over here waiting for you to prove that he knows what he's talking about. So we go down through chapter 2, just a few verses later. And this is Elisha. He's not doubled for nothing, but he's probably questioning it a little bit at this point. We read a little bit further down the road that Elisha, while he's in Jericho, actually performs this miracle that purifies some water uh, that had been bad for a few generations. And then we come to verses 23 through 25. And hopefully things are going to start looking up for Elisha. He's got his mantle. Maybe he's wearing it. He's got DC talk in his earbuds. And he's cruising on to do the ministry that God has called him to do. And this is the very next thing that happens to him. Elisha left Jericho. He went up to Bethel. And as he's walking along the road... Oh, I just got, okay, I've, I've been on a tour bus on that road. I didn't walk it, but I have been on a tour bus on the road from Jericho. All right. Uh, as he's walking along the road, a group of boys go from the town, and they begin mocking him and making fun of him. They say, go away, go away, baldy. <laughs> they chanted again, go away, baldy. Elisha turned around and looked at them. He cursed them in the name of the Lord. Two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of them. How are two bears going to maul 42 people, man? Like, they had to have been standing there and fighting the bears. It's terrible. It's a mess. Elisha is trying to establish that I am doubly anointed and you should respect me. And, uh, and from there, Elisha went to Mount Carmel. And finally, he returns to Samaria. But one commentary talks about this. And it says something that's pretty interesting in the New Living Translation. It says that this group of boys was probably a group of teenagers, much like the amazing young teenagers we have on the front row over here. Uh, says they were probably uh, of age not to be married but learning a trade, and so they weren't quite ready to be called men yet. These guys are men, but in the Bible, they probably weren't quite ready to be called men. And, and, and literally translated, it doesn't say, the Bible says go away, but literally translated, it says go up. Go up, baldy, is what they're saying to him. So literally they're like, hey, we heard your little story about Elijah, why don't you go up like he does, right? Go up. You had this experience. Go up, baldy. They're calling right off the bat, man. They're making fun of the way he looks, which that's just low, man, right off the bat. And then they follow that up with saying, we heard about your testimony, and we think it's stupid. Why don't you just go up and go up like Elijah did if you think that's what's happening? Double the anointing like a quarter of the respects, man. 
It's just getting worse for poor Elisha. He is anointed by God, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the people he's called to reach are respecting that calling. But here's a little bit more. This is only the second encounter. It gets better for him. Doing the work of God should never be about our own glory, should never be about our own respect, because I promise you it will not work out well for us. If we're not bringing glory to God, we're in the wrong business, and people will let you know, much like these young boys calling him Baldy. But Elisha starts to appear a little bit frustrated. You can see it when you read through the first and second Kings. He's a little bit frustrated about the people of God, the people that God has anointed him to be a prophet over. He's doubly anointed, but these guys are sinful. It's the wicked nation of Israel, and the reality of his calling is starting to set in. Whatever glory and feeling came over him when he received the mantle of Elijah has quickly given way to frustration with the spiritual state of the nation of Israel. And so just a few verses later, we're not going like chapters later, we're just going a few verses later. And this is the next time we read about Elisha. It's at a time when the nations of Judah, Israel, and Edom, so the northern kingdom of Israel, Judah, and they picked up a friend in Edom, um, they decide they're going to go fight against the king of Moab. And these three armies, they've gathered together, and they head out into the wilderness, and they recognize that they are too far away from resources, and they run out of water. They didn't have Google Maps back in the day, so they're just like, mm, now we have no water for our horses, we have no water for our armies, and the king of Moab is going to come down and smiteth us. <laughs> so they're like, somebody has the idea, maybe we should get God involved. And look what happens in 2 Kings chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. What should we do? The evil, wicked king of Israel cried out. The Lord has brought the three of us here to let the king of Moab defeat us. But King Jehoshaphat of Judah, they're trying in Judah, right? He says, is there no prophet of the Lord with us? If there is, we can ask the Lord what we should do through him. One of King Joram's officers replied, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here. He used to be Elijah's personal assistant. Doubly anointed, man. He's known as a personal assistant. Jehoshaphat said, yes, the Lord speaks through him. So the king of Israel, King Jehoshaphat of Judah, and the king of Edom went to consult with Elisha. So they're going to get God involved, and they're going to go consult with him. And here it is. Why are you coming to me, Elisha asked the king of Israel. Like, what are you coming to me for? Go to the pagan prophets of your father and mother. Aw, snap. He is like, you're going to come to me now? Go talk to the prophets and, you know, all of these evil gods that you try to pray to. But King Joram of Israel said, no. For it was the Lord who called us three kings here only to be defeated by the king of Moab. The, the king of Israel is not happy. He's very mad, and you can kind of pick up that he's starting to blame God for what's happening in his life, which is not usually the way to go. Elisha replies, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I wouldn't even bother with you except for my respect for King Jehoshaphat of Judah. Now somebody bring me a harp, and then there's some more stuff. But you can see that Elisha, he's, he's, he literally swears before God, I'm here for the kingdom of Israel, right? That's his purpose. That's his calling. And he tells the king, if it had not been for the king of Judah, I wouldn't even deal with you. I would just let you go die in this valley. Like, I can't stand you that much, is what Elisha is telling this king. And then he says, somebody bring me a harp. I got to calm down, right? So he gets the harp going. And then the Bible tells us that he does eventually hear from God, and they, they win a great victory in that battle. But it's not because 
of the king of Israel is because of the king of Judah, whom he has some respect for. In a lot of ways, when you look at Elijah's ministry, you might be able to relate a little more than with Elijah. Because you can see that Elisha right here, he had some like church envy going on. He was looking down at Judah. He's up here in Israel. Everybody's carnal. They're praying to Baal. They're just terrible people. He can't stand the king, apparently. We find that out. And he's looking down at Judah, and he's like, I have respect for them. They're at least trying down there, right? Like, they probably bring donuts in on Sunday morning, and they probably, you know, when I preach, they pay attention. And these guys, I wish I was the prophet of Judah. Like, you could almost see this in Elisha when you're reading this. Like, they're at least trying down there, but no, I'm stuck up here. And sometimes, sometimes, we can even get into a similar spot as Elisha, where we are called, and we are anointed, and we are empowered, and yet it's a whole lot easier to look at down the road, maybe, at what somebody else is doing, or what, maybe at another ministry that seems like it would be easier than the one we're currently serving in, if we aren't careful, and be like, man, that would sure be a lot easier if that was the case, right, if we were doing this. Like, don't get me wrong, there are some things that everybody has probably had to deal with, right? Like, maybe, I don't know, I can't praise sing, but I think it'd be kind of nice to pray sing sometimes. I don't know. Whatever, the, whatever. insert your ministry, insert another ministry that looks cool. You probably have been there at some point. You've probably been there. But Elisha is there. He's called. He's anointed. No doubt he probably had some great expectations for him and the nation of Israel to come back to God together. And it just wasn't going that way for him. And he was a little bit irritated to the point where he was like, man, I swear before God that I would not even help you if it wasn't for this guy being with you. And that is a pretty dark place. But here's another way to look at it. And I'll just say this really quick, and then I'm going to dip to another part. Regardless of the political environment that Elisha was a part of, God's calling was still higher than the people who were running the country at the time. And we can look at Elisha, and we can probably be like, man, I don't know. I don't know where you're all at on anything, but it's not about who's leading the country. It's about the country that God has called us to reach. And we can kind of see in Elisha the frustration, but at the same time, it doesn't change. We are anointed for a specific reason, and it doesn't change regardless of who's leading the country. But I'm going to go on. All right, so Elisha would figure it all out. He would. It didn't all go bad for Elisha. He would actually turn out to be one of the most, if not the most influential prophet of the Old Testament. In fact, in the end, it was recorded that Elisha did twice as many notable miracles than Elijah, depending on what commentary you read. So he got his double portion. He got his double portion. He did twice as many great miracles than Elijah did. But any story you read about in the Bible that involves a prophet, it never ends with them being glorified. It always ends with God's purpose being fulfilled. And when you're seeking that calling and you're seeking that anointing, it's an important thing to keep in mind that it's going to be God's purpose. It's not going to be our will or our glory. And God used Elijah for a specific reason, and he used Elisha for a specific reason. He used Elijah to establish himself in Israel through power and through demonstration. There was, there was no recollection of God at the time Elijah stepped on the scene. But in the next generation with Elisha, God anointed and used Elisha to reach for the people of Israel one last time with power and with demonstration. What Elisha did not know was that the northern kingdom of Israel was living in its last days as a kingdom. There would be other kings. There would be a few more minor prophets. 
But Elisha was the last period of God's demonstration and power to reach the nation of Israel. Israel would reject God, and as a result, Israel would lose its protection and its favor. Powerful nations would rise up, they would invade the nation of Israel, and the ten northern tribes would disappear from biblical and world history forever. Gone. All that we're left with is the remnant from Judah, even to this day. Elisha's anointing wasn't doubled for no reason. It really wasn't. He asked for a double portion, but it wasn't doubled for nothing. It was God's last great push to reach the people he loved but had forgotten him. And so he allowed this anointing to fall on Elisha, not just because Elisha asked for it at a conference one time, but because God knew that, man, this this isn't going to go on like this for long. And if maybe if they see the demonstration and power through him, maybe they'll turn back towards me because he loves them so much. And you know what? We can draw a lot of parallels between our time now and the time of Elijah and Elisha. We really can. Help me as I reach for this, guys. Just, just roll with me. We are like an Elijah generation as a group because a lot of us here, we are the second generation of Pentecostal churches in the U.S., Um, We know this because many of the founding members and pastors of Pentecostal churches in the U.S. are either still alive or in the past 10 to 20 years. They've just recently passed on the scene, passed from the scene. In society, we we tend to look at generations in about 20-year gaps, 20-year periods. So we got, and everybody I think is representative in here. So we got the baby boomers. We got Gen Xers. We got millennials. We got Gen Z. We got the new kids. We haven't even named the new kids yet. They They don't have a cool generational name. And every 20 years, and we can jump in and talk about our, our generational differences, and they exist, and they're, they're funny at times and frustrating at other times. Um, but biblically, however, typically in the Bible, and there are different uses for the term generation in the Bible, I do recognize that, but typically in the Bible, a generation is a lifetime, or about 70 years, which is interesting, because if you'll throw that next slide up there for me, uh, we have recently, look at this. We have recently celebrated our 75th anniversary as an organization, at least our 75th general conference as an organization. And uh, we really are, everybody that's in this church, regardless of your age right now, in this building or watching online, we are alive and we are part of a second generation of apostolics. And I recognize that some of you are also part of that first generation as well. But for me, I mean, I'm all second generation. I wasn't there for that first round. (laughs) But that first generation, that first generation, and you can see it black and white, man. They're up there. Usually when you see these individuals, they are preaching fire, and they don't care if you're listening or not. They're coming right down your alley, and they're going to let you know that there's one God. His name is Jesus. you got to be baptized in that name and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Amen. And the gospel still works for those who let it. Amen. But that was that first generation. That was an Elijah generation because they took that revelation that the apostles had in the book of Acts, and they brought it right down into the living room of America, whether America wanted it or not. They were bringing it. They were preaching on street corners. They were doing it. And you were seeing the power of God demonstrated in an Elijah generation to establish something that had been forgotten. And those guys were pioneers, man, preachers, prayer warriors, saints, peanut brittle makers. <laughs> man, I ain't mocking it. I can't do it, but I ain't mocking it. Dude, you know how hot you have to get peanut brittle to make it? That, <laughs> it's unbelievable that everybody survived that generation. In fact, the last time I was in California, not this, not this last time where I went out for my grandfather's funeral, but the time before that in last December, I actually was sitting there with my grandma and my grandpa, and they were telling me they were the peanut brittle makers of the, of the movement. That was, their, that was their role. 
And they were telling me they would make so much peanut brittle and sell it that they were like strategic, man. They would make it in their houses. They would go out on the weekends. They would sell it in their neighborhoods. And they literally overran the city of Bakersfield with peanut brittle to the point that nobody would buy, nobody would buy it anymore. So they would get up early on Saturday morning. They would drive the two hours to Los Angeles. They would sell their car out of peanut brittle. They'd drive back and be at church on Sunday. Unbelievable. You know why they were doing that? Because it was just something they could do to bring money into the church, to build church buildings, to share the gospel with the city. And that was all they could do, and that's what they did. That is an Elijah generator. They didn't care. They did not care. They were here to bring the gospel and to spread it. And I'm thankful for that generation. I'm thankful for everybody in this church who has built stuff that I now get to come into and my kids get to come into. However, I do believe that every one of us here today, regardless of age, are called to be an Elisha generation. We are the next generation that follows that. And you know what's interesting is many of us, I think if we were honest, we probably at some point prayed for that double portion, right? God, I want to be used of you. I want to be anointed. I want to do your work. I want to do your will. I want to reach the city, Kansas City Metro, two and a half million people. Let me do something, right? We've prayed this prayer. If you haven't, stick around. You'll pray it at some point. We've all prayed this prayer. We've all wanted God to use us for something that was great. And you know what? Just like Elisha, I think a lot of us probably didn't realize what we were asking for. And I don't think a lot of us realize what that might look like. The generation ahead of us did not face the challenges that we face today, tonight, as a church. As Refuge Church, I do believe this with all my heart. We're called to be a light and a refuge, not just to the city of Liberty, but to the whole northern part of Kansas City. God has anointed us. He's called us for this great time, and he's let us come together in this building. And I believe it 100%. But we are facing things that the generation before us did not face. And we could go down a long list. But I'll tell you this. The political situation, regardless of your side, deeply divided like it has never been, be never been before. Sin has never been more welcome or applauded in the history of society. We're having to preach and teach to our kids about things today that that generation before us and they never had to deal with. Never, never even, probably didn't even hear of some of the stuff that we have to actually literally teach our kids about at a young age. Unbelief and the miraculous power of God is at an all-time high. Skeptics everywhere. God, what, miracle services? What is that, right? What is that? that that's, unbelief is all over the place in this nation. And if we're not careful, we, like Elisha, might say this world is going to hell in a handbasket. And I told him, I told him. I told them you can't do that. You can't live that way. You can't vote that way. You can't go this way and expect to have God's blessing on you. And it, and it could be easy for us to just kind of recluse into our shell, right? And to just focus on ourselves and not recognize that maybe, just like Elisha didn't know that his double portion was going to look different than he thought of, maybe our great calling and our ministry is going to look a little bit different than we had dreamed about. I think he probably, if Elisha was honest with you, and when it first started, he probably told you, he probably imagined that he was going to be speaking to the nations of Israel, demonstrating God's power, and leading them back to an altar, and they were going to have a turnaround. That's, that, I hope that's what he was dreaming of. That was the right thing to be dreaming of. But you know what? It looked a whole lot different. It looked a whole lot different for him than that. It didn't mean he wasn't anointed. It didn't mean that God made a mistake. It just meant that maybe his expectations and God's plan had to be aligned at some point. And you know what? 2020 has been a year to forget. However, we will never forget it. <laughs> Which is ironic. 
Anytime somebody says that's something to forget, you'll just etched in your mind forever. And you know what? If we're honest with ourselves, it, 2020 looks different at this point than we probably thought it was going to look a few years ago. And I don't know what's going to happen in the future with COVID. None of us do. The numbers are rising. I don't know what's going to happen with this presidential election transition, future elections. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what the world's going to look like. Globalization, it's coming. It's looking more and more every day like that's going to be the case. But I do know this, that each and every one of us were anointed for the great work that God has planned in this city, in your home, and in your life. God has doubly anointed us to deal with what we're facing. The setting looks very different. Did you know we are about to finish a building campaign? I think next month. I think that's it. Dude, you remember what two years ago we were doing? Those of you who were here, you're a guest, I'll tell you. We were having pie meetings. <laughs> you guys remember those? <laughs> we were eating pie. We were talking about the future. There was like pieces of land we were dreaming about. Dude, I don't think any of us looked in the future and saw this. But you know what? I have, I have, I have some news for you. God inspired us to do that. And you know who did know what the future looked like? God knew. God knew that this was coming. God knew what was coming ahead of us. And you know what? He was like, we, we didn't make a mistake. We weren't crazy. We weren't wrong to dream about the future. Because you know what? It doesn't matter what happens around us. God has a plan for this church. And what he has put in place, it will come to fruition. And when you, when you read about the last day, when you read about what's going to happen in the end time, it doesn't mean we're going to be hiding in basements and God's power is going to be void. It doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible when you look at it. I see things like Jesus talking to the disciples and he tells them, hey, you know what? Once I'm gone, you're going to do greater works than the works that I have done. That's what he says we're going to be able to do. You know what he says? He's like, before I come back, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons, your daughters are going to prophesy. Your young men are going to dream dreams. Your young girls are going to see visions. Every, I'm, going to, I'm going to do wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. All of this is going to happen before I return. You know what? I haven't seen any of that yet. So I'm believing that's going to come down the road pretty quick. And I'm excited for it. Because you know what? God has anointed this generation, all of us in this building tonight, to be that proxy for the city of liberty, for the city of Kansas City, to usher in that last great revival that God is going to have for us. And you know what? If we look at it sometimes, it looks a little bit different. Man, we were doing Zoom small groups. There was, there's animals jumping in on the Zoom small groups. There's background noise that's getting out of control. Uh, Oh, man, kids haven't even been able to go back to school yet, a lot of them. It looks so different than we probably imagined. And I don't know, maybe this will all pass away and life will go back as normal. But if it doesn't, it doesn't mean that God doesn't have a plan for us and for his church. And can I tell somebody, you are still going to be anointed and you are still enough to reach your schools. You are still enough to start that Bible study that you've been putting off. You are still enough to start in that ministry that you've been trying to start in. You are anointed to have that difficult conversation about God to your family member or to your friend. And if you are here or if you're listening online and you've never been filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, you are still capable of receiving that gift and being baptized in Jesus' name and being part of this covenant. Can I just tell you as a church, the principle for life, just like Elisha, you are a doubly anointed for this bizarre time. <laughs> and there is nobody I'd rather be sitting in a church service with than with this group, because I know that God has great things planned. If we stand, we can have the musician come.
Elisha's double portion looked a lot different than he had probably dreamed. And I definitely think that our, our, uh, our ministry over the next little bit is going to look a little bit different than maybe we had planned. However, I am very confident that God is in it. I'm very confident that God has a great plan for our church, for our youth group, for our future. And it's not going to be impacted by the things that the world does. <clears throat> so I don't know where you're at tonight. You might be a little bit apathetic towards the whole thing. COVID, sick of it. Online service, sick of it. Whatever it is, sick of it. You might just be apathetic to the whole thing. You might be on fire for God, man. You might have been getting up early, praying. You might be ready to go. Or you might be fearful. You might not like where you're at right now. And you might not like the thought of being used by God because you don't feel like you're ready to be used by God because you don't feel like you're in a good place. But you know what? Elisha didn't realize the timeline of his ministry. If he did, maybe he would have been a little bit nicer to that king. <laughs> if he did realize the timeline of his ministry, maybe he would have been a little bit more urgent. I don't know. Maybe he would have done three times the miracles that Elijah did. But he didn't realize the time of his calling. He didn't realize the time of his anointing. And so today I wanted to tell you guys, God has a plan for your life. He has anointed you. You are still called to do great things for the kingdom of God. But one thing I can't tell you is I don't know how much time you have to do that. I really don't. And what if, what if Jesus wraps this thing up pretty soon? I'll tell you what, man, I don't want to look back and say, man, I could have done so much more. Because I know right now I, I could do more. I'm not doing as much as I could do. You know, if God has given me an anointing and a calling and an opportunity, what am I doing with it? Am I, am I just wasting time right now or am I getting closer to him? And so that's kind of the takeaway today is let's just take a few minutes. You can pray in your seat. You can come up here to the front if you want to. But let's stop and say, hey, I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I'm not doubled for nothing. <laughs> I'm not anointed for no reason. You know what? God has a plan for me and I'm ready to get a hold of it. I'm ready to start taking some steps towards it. Can we find a place to pray tonight for a few minutes before we head out? And let's let God speak to us. Let's let God call us back into some things that maybe we've kind of gotten away from. And let's let God give us a future, maybe even if we don't see it. Amen.